Hello, and welcome to The Abstract with your hosts, Kristen and Jeremy. We're bringing you this show on CFUR 88.7 FM and online at CFUR.ca. We are broadcasting from the traditional unceded territories of the Clay Latine First Nation. Today on the show, we have Thomas Balfour, who is a master's student in the Freshwater Fish Ecology Lab here at UMBC under the supervision of Dr. Eduardo Martins. He has his Bachelor's of Science from University of Victoria, and he's also a project manager at the Central West Coast Forest Society in Euclid. Today on the show, we talked to Tom about primarily about his work with the Central West Coast Forest Society, where he's done quite a bit of work on stream rehabilitation and restoration. We also talked to him about some of the work that he's going to be doing on his master's and then how that ties into the work he's been doing um, with Central West Coast and some of the specific projects that he worked on and some of the fun stuff he's gotten to do in the field. But first, we've got a uh, personal favorite track lined up for you. Uh, This is Swimmers from Broken Social Scene. Well, thanks, Tom, for agreeing to do this interview with us. Um, Pretty excited to have you to hear about all the work that you've been doing in a pretty cool part of the province. Uh, But before we kind of dive into that, can you just maybe give the listeners a bit of your background and your history and how you got to PG? Uh, Yeah, thanks, Jamie and Kristen, for having me. Um, Stoked to be on your radio show. I guess my history, I don't know. I was born in Victoria. I spent the first little bit of my life there before moving to Vernon in the interior there. And then came back to UVic for my undergrad. Um, and yeah, and throughout my undergrad, I worked um, in mineral exploration kind of all over, doing prospecting and um, a bunch of different 
things involved in grassroots exploration before kind of switching over to fisheries work maybe six years ago. And um, yeah, just throughout my work in fisheries, kind of ended up that I needed to go back to school. And that's sort of where I ended up now here at UNBC. How did you end up finding UNBC of all places anyways? Did you, uh, was it a specific project that drew you in or a specific instructor here? Um, a little bit. Um, I'd heard good things about the program. I didn't want to go back to UVic, just, just having already been there. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to get out of the southern bubble. There's, you know, Victoria, Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I just kind of wanted to change the scenery. And the small school thing really appealed to me, too. Um, I'm from small town, live in a small town. I don't like tons and tons of people. That, that really <laughs> yeah. appealed for me. I, and to be honest, when I was just starting to shop around at the different fish programs, Eduardo and his lab was just super open and friendly. And that's that kind of what drew me in. I was like, oh, I'd like to work with these guys. Nice. So that's how, how I ended up there, yeah. Right on those friendly northern vibes, eh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like trying to, I, I kind of like decided I was going to go to grad school like basically this time last year. And of course, that's way outside of the normal application process. So most people didn't even like, uh, they're like, oh, okay, you can try again next year. But Eduardo was like, yeah, apply. We can get you going. Awesome. So, yeah. Yeah. I was, it was I, how willing they were to sort of make it work for me. And I kind of came into like, well, I can probably, create and fund my own project um but i want to keep my job and i want to work close to home and and they're very facilitating of all that as well Mm. like we're we're working this around my life yeah right on and uh and yeah so as you say you want to work from home you're currently in ukulele right now we're talking to you through skype and Mm. um i guess you've been living in ukulele for how long you've been working there with did you end up in Uclulet through working for Central West Coast Forest Society? Uh, kind of, yeah. So, yeah, all right from I started doing exploration in kind of 2011, and I finished about 2015. And in those last couple of years after I'd done my undergrad, I was doing that full time. And so my partner, because I was always gone in camp, moved out to Tofino just for, just for something fun in the summer while I was away in the bush. And we were going to kind of... Um, meet up after and go and find real jobs but then that never really happened like we she managed to get herself a job with the city here and i um actually ended up doing exploration in clayquat sound which is a little bit of double dipping now i've done (laughs) (laughs) mining work in some of the same watersheds have now done restoration work make work but uh yeah just kind of evolved through that so I i was working for a geologist based out of here doing work for imperial metals um in Clayquot Sound, which is not a very popular job to have. Mm. Um, so, and I was just, just kind of getting over that um, field in general, and mostly having to do with wanting to be closer to home and have a bit more of a life. Um, yeah, I just kind of slipped into the role with Central West Coast. I was working, the woman who had my job before was an exploration geologist who um, was moving on, and I was working for her, her husband, and they sort of just like, let me into this job which i've been in for like six years now i guess um yeah we lived in tofino for the first five years i guess but i wanted to buy a house and my office is in yuki here so we um did that 
Yeah, thought I also moved down here maybe two years ago. Nice. And- did you did you know that you wanted to switch from doing like the exploration stuff, the mineral exploration stuff, to more of like this what you've gotten yourself into now? Or was it just kind of like luck? A <laughs> uh, little bit of both. Like going to school, this is sort of the field I wanted to end up in. And I think we were talking the other day. Like when I was doing all this exploration stuff, I was still studying biology. But everyone, I was, I was around geologists all the time. And they're like, you're never going to find a job in that. You should be a geologist and exploration's where it's at. And I sort of took that advice. Um, but the further I got into it and the further I saw where the career is headed, and it just kind of wasn't the direction I wanted to be going. I, I love that stuff. Um, but yeah, the idea that you could do restoration as a career was never really thought of. It's, it's still kind of unique. Um, so yeah, it's, it's where I'd hoped I would have ended up, but yeah. it was not really a plan because I just didn't see it as feasible, really. Yeah. Did, now, so, so that's kind of a, like a similar path that I've taken. I also started in mineral exploration before coming up to UMBC and starting yeah. in science here. And, um, and that was kind of a concern for me as well, is like, it seems like it's harder to get uh, start a career in environmental science in any sort of uh, arm of, of that realm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it does feel, but it feels like more, you know, in line with my values. Like I'd rather be on the side of, you know, trying to restore or protect the environment as opposed to being in mining where you're, you're, you're exploiting it for resources. Um, and one of the things that I've kind of struggled with is like, (laughs) am I just, am I just on the same roller coaster that, that, that exploration is just on a different end of it or, or, or what? So do you, do you have any of that struggle as well? You know, having been at the front end of, you know, environmental exploitation versus the cleanup of it. Um, I'm not sure I understand the questions. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I guess I'm wondering, like for me, when I switched to environmental science, it felt like a little bit rewarding that, okay, I'm now on a track to, to be on more the side of preserving the environment as opposed to exploiting it. But sometimes I keep thinking that, you know, maybe I'm still just within the same industry, just at a different end of it. Uh, interesting. Yeah, um, totally. And I can see, like, with our work and the fisheries stuff, I guess the more I got into the environmental and the things, I guess, and, like, the conservation side, it's, like, I don't feel like I'm on a different end because we are sort of this weird back end um, that should exist, in my opinion, in within the industry, right? Like, we're sort of acting as this arm, you know, in a perfect world that forestry would have had as they went, this whole, you could log and, and do restoration and conserve fish habitat and all that. But that piece never happened. So we're sort of coming in after the fact. Um, and it's always so much harder to clean up than it is to prevent a mess. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. Is that a good enough answer for you, Jeremy? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of one of those things where it's, 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 you know, I feel like it's sort of maybe just a part of being, you know, North Americans in an affluent society that you know we get the opportunity to appreciate exploring in nature and and appreciate going fishing or mountain biking, mm-hmm. whatever in these great wild, wild places. Mm-hmm. But then the reason why we are able to, in some respects, is because we have this society that's very much built on 
on exploiting those environments. So it's it's kind of yeah okay. yeah totally. <laughs> and I mean even that like so yeah the work itself is going for conservation stuff, but the money has to come from somewhere. And you know in our you know even our federal grants they they probably are generated by oil and mining revenues. Right, we're a resource based place. I don't like. Yeah, my work wouldn't exist without a, a good economy and money to spare to be put towards these things. Um, so yeah, for sure, it's, it's complicated. And then fish, in particular, is very complicated, very political. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, sorry, <laughs> sorry, I was going to cut you off, Jeremy. I guess one of the things that uh, you mentioned previously is how, like, your proud of or like impressed with the fact that your organization could remain pretty apolitical and just like do the good work without uh, necessarily having to delve into too much activism. Can you just talk a little bit about a, a little bit more about that and, and how you guys manage to do that? Because I think that's something that like in my work and probably in Jeremy's as well, we kind of strive for is that apoliticism. Yeah. yeah. Well, can I tell you the origin story to kind of oh, yeah. explain why, why it is, is that way? And so I don't know how familiar you guys are with forestry policy on the coast, but up until kind of the mid nineties, there was really mm, kind of no rules about protecting um, freshwater habitat and fisheries resources. So, you know, there were some suggestions and some guidelines, um, but as a result, logging just kind of went full steam ahead and destroyed a lot of habitat. And people were seeing this at the time. And even, even out here, there was, there was this kind of strange, um, where like the fishermen were seeing these reductions and seeing their industry crash while logging was booming. And so you had these two industries actually at heads and there was, there was fishermen hunger strikes and all these, these kind of interesting with the two coming together. And, and these were sort of the canary in the coal mine. These guys had seen the loggers, like the local guys you talked to, they were, they were seeing what they were doing and sort of like putting the two and two together. And the fishermen were seeing the declines at sea as they're catching but it takes a while for this to come to the general public and policymakers. but then that stuff sort of comes to a head in 93 94 which is like the war in the woods right the like the biggest instance of civil disobedience civil disobedience in canadian history happened out here in clarequat sound all sorts of people blockading um the logging of, of this certain island but in, in general it was a protest for a change in, in forestry practices and and what came out of that was this, this clay quad scientific panel and all these sort of recommendations and a, a, essentially a moratorium on logging in clay quad sound which great success we, we stopped the old growth logging um but as a result you know th these places before the tourism and before the surfing and all that they are resource towns and people were logging and fishing and making good lives doing that but this that those protests and that those changes effectively shut that down. The fishing had already been in decline, and um, and with that stop in logging, that put a ton of people out of work. So there was this two sides, right? Like people are happy that the old growth's getting protected, but at the same time, it put our communities out of work. And then there was quite a few like activism groups, and there was a literally chaining themselves to trees, and and all that stuff was great and effective. But there was also a lot of resentment towards it here. And so Central West Coast kind of came out, not like, like not as a reaction, but just out of that as sort of this, okay, we've, we've stopped the logging, but these problems that still exist. These watersheds have already been logged, and they've been logged poorly. 
So we're going to have to do something about it. The damage has been done. Policy changes can't undo past wrongs. So, and we've got all these unemployed people. And so it started, kind of came along as this effort to put unemployed loggers, fishermen, and First Nations people back to work on these doing watershed restoration. And at the time, there was a huge pot of provincial money for this very thing. It was called Forest Renewal BC. And the, the guys who I talked to from the early days, they said the money was just coming off the back of trucks. And for better or worse, <laughs> there, was, there was some <laughs> questionable projects done. But at the same time, there was this general, I, I think it's a cool idea to how do we put these people back to work and use their skills, right? They're not like, oh, you guys are now going to be surf instructors or whatever. They're, yeah. They're, they're like, you guys have this really impressive set of skills um, that we can use to put towards this kind of watershed restoration. And so we're kind of getting two birds stoned and we're fixing the watersheds. We're putting people back to work and... And, and engaging the community, that's the other thing, right? It's, people care about fish out here. Um, people care about their watersheds. We're that much more connected to it, right? You can see it. People are fishermen. This is, everyone's pretty connected to it. Um, but then to further, to bring those people out to their watersheds, show them what's going on, and show them how they can hands-on do something about it, I think is sort of kind of the foundation of it. So as much as it is and uh about the ecosystem restoration it's very much about the social side of it too and how those two kind of have to go hand in hand and then because of that because we're like we have a very heavy industry background um well i guess the idea is just in, as soon as you start taking a side and being political you alienate certain sides and, and that that has to be done mm -hmm. in certain circumstances but for us we didn't have to pick a side, right? The damage has been done. It's clear. We've accepted that the old logging was really bad for the streams. Okay, let's go fix it. And who wants to help? Rather than this kind of pointing fingers and you're on my side, I'm on yours, whatever. Um, and we're in a unique situation where that can work. There is something hands-on we can all agree on. Everyone can go do. That's the nice thing about salmon is almost everyone loves them and doesn't want to hurt them right across industry. Um, at least in, in my experience. Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. Even, even, you know, I go and I work in a lot of these logging camps doing restoration in a place where they're actively logging and the guys are just thrilled on it. And they, you know, they accept there's issues with logging and stuff. But we sort of have this unifying cause of salmon and who wants to help? We, we don't need... There is, there's, you know, there's plenty of activism to be done. That's just not our jam. And I think we just kind of get lumped in because that environmental NGO, oh, that means activism. That means you're anti this anti that and i'm anti a lot of things personally the organization. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah. the organization doesn't need to do that we have a problem we're working on it yeah yeah, yeah. cool yeah well so um yeah i'd love to dive into the weeds a little bit more on what the the details on those projects are but uh mm -hmm. first we'll just we'll take a quick break here and uh come back to more tom balfour after our tune here our next track's from my old stomping grounds in Vancouver. Coming up is Adrenaline Night Shift from Japan Droids. Party on! <laughs> Yeah. 
the Japan Droids with Adrenaline Makeshift. You're listening to CFUR 88.7 FM and online at CFUR.ca. We're back with Tom Balfour and uh, yeah, we uh, just had a brief introduction to the genesis of Central West Coast Forest Society with whom Tom works. Um, but uh, just to zoom back a little bit to your life at UNBC, um, I realize you're pretty early on in your master's at UNBC, but um, what's the general direction that your master's is taking so far? Yeah, so I guess just like when I kind of came into fisheries, it was sort of from a habitat and like watershed processes kind of lens. But the more I work, I've always loved fish and it's always kind of been a key interest. And the more we started looking into these restoration questions and habitat questions, it just became clear that there's a lot more fish questions that need to be answered that can't be attributed to some of these, these habitat problems. And, and especially out here, it's... it's concerns about at-sea survival for juvenile Chinook salmon. Um, it's a lot of our restoration is focused on that. And um, and so that's where kind of my master's research is looking, <clears throat> trying to kind of quantify and, and figure out where are those bottlenecks for survival for juvenile Chinook um, in that kind of first, first like six to eight months of life. So they kind of come out of the gravel and they, they work their way. And out, out here on the, the coast, they don't spend a whole lot of time in river. They go pretty much straight to the estuary, and that's sort of where they rear. And then they'll hang out in the sound for kind of a year and take off. Mm. Um, but sort of kind of, we've had having such terrible returns, you know, for a long time now, it just gets, gets worse and worse. Um, and some of these questions about where is that mortality happening? It's in that, you know, those first few months of life kind of at sea. And so we're we're looking at tracking um, a population of Chinook through that first few months and, and trying to figure out where those limiting factors are, if it's food or it's habitat or if it's sea conditions. Or... Cool. Yeah, that's kind of the general gist of it. Um, but yeah, we're, we're still working on kind of fine-tuning what that's going to look like and, and the kind of core research questions to that. But yeah, early life survival of Chinook salmon. And do you get to do that work? Will it be like a collaboration uh, with Central West Coast, or is it are those kind of two completely different compartments? Um, they're they're tied together for sure. I've, I've partnered with um, a different nonprofit for this particular project, but Central West Coast will be supporting me throughout. Um, they're my partner on my my tax funding and. The nice thing about working with them is they're going to loan me all the gear and staff. So if I don't have to hire field staff, I can just grab one oh. of the crew. When I, when oh, yeah, that's a win. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so I'm going to be well sort played. of working on Central West Coast projects half the week and my own research half the week. And there's going to be lots of back and forth. So, yes. Uh, I mean, the fish community out here is pretty small. I think like, yeah, I'll be working with a couple of different nonprofits, a couple of different First Nations, and everyone sort of pooling resources. And that also let me access a whole bunch of different grants I couldn't have normally. So fingers crossed those come through. Yeah. Cool. So it sounds like there's going to be at least one field campaign related to your project. Like, are you going to be tagging fish physically going in? Yeah. Yeah. So we're working with the local hatchery and we're going to tag them all, all the hatchery releases for this one river. And then basically follow them through the summer, first in the river, using the pit tag array and trying to get a sense, okay, how many get out of the river? do some snorkels and stuff to figure out how big they are. 
there's sort of there's all these questions like Chinook have to reach these certain size benchmarks in order to be successful and it's kind of to keep up with their food growth throughout the summer mm. um and one of the big ones is is the switch over to eating fish right and they, they in the estuary they're eating in the river they're eating bugs and, and inverts and stuff like this but as they get bigger they start to feed on things like herring and if you know the habitat's been decreased and the food availability is low that the Chinook can't keep up with um the growth of their food then that then they obviously can't eat it and then they drop off so the idea is yes to sort of detract the survival and growth through those months like first yeah capturing them again in the river capturing them again in the estuary and then trying to catch them again at sea you know in a perfect mm. world we'll catch our same fish over and over again but that's kind of yet to be determined mm. cool you said yeah. what well, you said pit tag array what's what's that so a pit tag is a, a little tag you, you stick inside the fish, um, and uh, I, have to, <laughs> I can't remember what it stands for. <laughs> Passive induced transceiver or something like that. And anyways, it, it um, as they swim down, you have an array, which is just a, basically a, a cable stretched across the lower river. And when the fish swing across or swim across that, it dings and, and registers. Okay, it counts them. It counts them basically. Yeah, and then. Yeah. But then those tags, they all have a unique ID. So when I catch them again, we'll be able to scan them and you'll, you'll, you'll also be able to tell where that fish came from. Sort of the other component we're looking at is if you release your fish at different spots in the watershed, if that influences survival. So for this particular river, there's a lake at the head and a lot of the Chinook spawning happens just downstream of the lake with the idea that maybe they rear in the lake a little bit. And so we're going to release half our fish in the lake and then half mid-river. And these are two hatchery release strategies they've always kind of done without any kind of way to quantify it. And so that's going to be the first step. Okay, does release location influence your survival at all? And, and, and if it does, why? Mm. Um, cool. So yeah, that, that's the pit take component. But then again, like when I capture them out in the ocean, we'll be able to scan them and it'll give me a number. And I'll be like, okay, this fish was released in the lake on May 1st and at this size, right? That's and cool. then the, the the pit tags work all like they don't rely on a battery or anything. So you can even um, in the when the adults come back, you'll be able to get a, a true sense of survival if you can find those tags again. And you can mm. sort of get a you know in a perfect world, you get a percentage right right the way through um, mm. from a release to return you know, the whole survival. But that's kind of beyond my masters that's years mm, cool and i and i guess um you could also see how many fish actually make it to the estuaries in the first place too like if you're releasing yeah. any fish do the same number actually make it all the way out to the estuary yeah, or is exactly. there a on route well and that's exactly so okay yeah we figure out oh did they all died in the river and so now we know okay there's a river bottleneck or if, they, if they've you know a good portion of you know what you'd expect next to their, their estuary then you sort of can start to rule some of these things out but yeah that's the idea is to try to check for survival through all these kind of key benchmarks so when you've been doing some of the restoration work for uh central west coast are these uh are the, any of these methods that you've just been talking about are they kind of what you guys have used to measure the success of restoration or is the work with uh central west coast more just like we are restoring creeks and streams and that type of thing yeah, oh, m most definitely. So there, there's definitely a research and monitoring component to all the work. Um, in early years, no, it was very much, let's go put some wood into creeks and call it good. Um, but in, in modern days, we are trying to be more quant quantitative about it. 
the problem with that stuff mainly comes with the funding model that a lot of times we no one wants to fund monitoring they don't want to follow um fund research they want to fund physical restoration um mm-hmm. and so a lot of times we're kind of scrambling to either but it's, you know you, you can't do effective restoration without monitoring um so we're always trying to scramble to put together these kind of projects to get like success metrics and sometimes it's, it's not the case and other times it, it will be depending on how well funded the project is um mm-hmm. but yeah for for sure a lot of these kind of Density studies and habitat use or sort of like benchmark baseline stuff we do use for habitat effectiveness. Um, but yeah, that's a very hard thing to get paid for, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah so sorry, Jeremy, I'm going to cut you off again. Oh, good. <laughs> um, I think this is really cool. I think a lot of people are like really interested in the restoration side of things. So like, could you maybe just walk us through what a, a project looks like? Like, how do you identify the stream you're going to work in? And then like, how do you, yeah, like, how do you think about what, what type of restoration would work in that stream? Yeah, totally. So out here on the West Coast, like, I mean, there's, there's fisheries habitat restoration is a huge field and, and so varied depending on your issues and where you live. Um, like efforts to go on the lower Fraser do not apply to the West Coast and they don't apply to the, the Skeena, right? It's, it's all kind of different. But the big suite of problems on the West Coast is mainly forestry-induced, right? We don't have a lot of population. We don't have big industries other than forestry. Um, but unfortunately, the way it works in an old-growth watershed is those trees are basically the control for kind of everything that happens in the stream. Um, and we've lost all those trees. And with that, the watershed starts to unravel. And kind of what that looks like is, is first and foremost, it's the land side aspect, right? You've logged this steep valley wall that um, we have thin soil, we have tons of rain, like just, just a watershed, you know, my, two kilometers from my house here, it's like one of the rainiest places on earth. I think it's like six meters of rain or something crazy wow. on its record. So we, we get, you know, huge amounts of rain. But in the past, these trees and the vegetation were able to sort of suck up that water and slowly release it into the watershed. Um, and they also helped all the soil and rocks stick to the side of the, the valley. But you, you cut down those trees and eventually they were, the stumps rot and you end up with a big landslide down into the creek. And then, and so that buries the creek in sediment and gravel that starts to work its way through the river, filling in things like pools and back channels and sort of like these complex like the thing with fish habitats and, and most habitat is it's complexity right you need mm-hmm. variation you need all sorts of different types of habitat um and humans are really good at simplifying things um so yeah so now we've got these landslides and we've got this altered hydrology because at the same time now this water that once got taken up by this mature forest just ends up in the stream instantly so we've lost and so now you get these watersheds that those meters of rain instead of being kind of slowly diffused into the river now all end up in the river at once and so the these rivers can go from you know knee deep to to full-on torrent in hours and with that comes tons of erosion and the same problem you've had now is you've taken the trees off the stream banks which is which is the biggest one they kind of figure if they'd left the riparian corridors of mature forest, we wouldn't have half these problems. Mm-hmm. But so you take those trees off the stream bank, and now the stream just erodes and erodes and erodes, and, and at the same time, it's filling in with gravel. And so you end up with, they call them like boulder highways. It's just a straight, shallow, featureless river. And um, 
And we see this problem play out over and over again. And the other big thing with wood is when it falls into the stream, that's what, that's what makes the pools, that's what makes um, habitat for inverts and all the stuff that fish eats. It helps, you know, control temperature. Um, and I, a big thing they also did was in, they took all the wood that was in stream out. There was this, this early restoration they called stream cleaning that they thought the wood was in the way. Oh. But the fact was the wood is the most key component to a, to salmon habitat, especially on a coastal stream. Everything is wood controlled, and that's the one thing we've lost. But it's also almost impossible to get back, right? These watersheds kind of relied on huge trees to control all their kind of the form and function, and, and then which inevitably creates habitat, is gone. And so we have to try and, like, bring that back, I guess. And, like... It's kind of in like people use this argument in old growth logging that oh well, we've stopped like natural disturbance regimes they they need these resets and stuff, which is maybe true on like fire controlled systems like in the interior and stuff. But out here we never had mass kind of like reset events, right? You have a little landslide here and there, but the whole system is built on this like longevity built over top. So it's, it's my understanding that no forest ecosystem as is as fundamentally fundamentally changed through logging as an old growth coastal watershed is Um, because there just never was that system of disturbance, you know, other than a few small landslides here and there. Like that is a natural part, but it's just the scale of of which it has happened. Yeah. Right. And then, so with that, because the logging was so widespread and rampant, the, um, the watersheds kind of all have the same suite of issues. Um, So then, yeah, your question, how do we prioritize and figure out, um, our organization works on this model where we partner, there's, there's five um, First Nations out here in our kind of region, and then the two communities, the Euclid and Tofino. And so we try and partner um, with each of those communities and get their sort of um, thoughts on what's a priority watershed in this nation, in your territory, where would you like to see work done? Because there's no shortage of work to be done. Um, the targets change with the, the funding models like like i said right now there's a lot of chinook money around um, when i first started we were doing lots of coho projects but then within that we try and take community guidance we'll go okay community tofino like where what watershed issues do you have that you'd, you'd like to work with and, and those with tofino we do a lot of culvert replacements where they've the highways bisected important streams with non-fish friendly culverts we'll throw a, a big culvert in there but then some of these remote nations, if they have any big salmon-bearing watersheds, they will kind of help. Okay, this is the one that's important to our community, and this is where we'd like our efforts. And then we'll sort of go from there. And, um, yeah, then you just kind of assess and sort of, you know, these each watershed could use millions and millions of dollars of work. It's all yeah. sort of triage and picking out bite-sized projects that will have some impact. Um, yeah. And then just kind of go from there and adjust your scale and scope to the funding. And, you know, and sometimes it is just a bit of tree planting and some brushing, or sometimes it's, it's big um, construction of log jams and stuff, which we can tell you a little bit more about. Yeah. Well, maybe, uh, maybe we're coming up on a break here. So maybe uh, when we come back for our last segment, we can dive into what a, a specific project actually looks like once there's people tromping yeah. around in the creeks. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, this is great stuff. This is Tom Balfour on the Skype with us. Our next track is by Doug Seegers. This track is called Going Down to the Water 
on CFUR 88.7 FM in Prince George, B.C. I'm going down near the river Gonna wash my soul again I've been running with the devil And I know that he's not my friend I've been falling by the wayside Living in this world of sin I'm going down to the river Gonna wash my soul again I'm going out to the country Gonna bury my head in a creek I'm gonna jump in that water And baptize both of my feet Cause everywhere I've been walking I'm going down to the river Gonna wash my soul again
So we're back with Tom Balfour, who works uh, as a grad student at UMBC, but also with Central West Coast Forest Society. Um, and we kind of left off, you were talking in kind of broad terms how you guys get funding and pick projects. Um, but I guess we were just wondering if there's maybe one or a couple projects that you wanted to talk about that you were like super stoked on or you had tons of fun on or something like that. Uh, just a bit more specific like about the project, like what the work itself looks like. Yeah, like yeah. If you had one where you maybe had like fun caterpillars, like working in the streams or something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like, like kind of like like the, the work itself is very similar project to project. The scale sort of changes. Like, um, it sort of starts off. The first little bit is like is upslope stability stuff, deactivating roads, and then building terraces and trying to prevent landslides from happening so that's kind of stage one you're, you're happy the upslope's good and then we do do lots of planting in the riparian corridor right, right beside the stream there trying to like the idea there is to kind of kick off that the um, the re returnable growth forest because that that's essentially what's going to fix these rivers is you need that mature forest to come back and until then we can do sort of these kind of band-aid fixes to make physical habitat in the river so you sort of set up You've done some work upslope, you've done some work in the riparian, and now you're just going to have to wait six to eight hundred years. But, <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> in the, in the, mean, the meantime, no, they can start being like kind of functional under 200 years, but um, in the meantime, we have to like, we don't have that much time with our fish, especially on the west coast and salmon. Salmon ever are doing poorly. So we work in the stream to actually create physical habitat the fish can use in the meantime, which involves building these like yeah taking extreme usually and building log jams to simulate old growth wood and this is sort of most of my work revolves around this um and, and it is it is really cool trying to essentially like mimic beavers like it used to be early days of restoration very hard materials cables and rocks and kind of non-natural stuff uh, but we're moving more towards these natural functioning jams with a bit more plasticity and and complexity and yeah you're just trying to simulate these log jams to, to create habitat and this and kind of like kick off a lot of these processes that form habitat um so it, it is super fun to be out there digging around in a creek um like a beaver throwing trees in and, and, and trying to make it all stick and then and then watching it change over time like that's that's a big thing about this whole these rivers and trying to do restoration like trying to get your mind around the fact that the rivers change and move and they're super dynamic and you sort of got to work with that instead of against it but um yeah super complicated to try and do well but then also you don't like there's this sort of a couple of schools of thought right from the full-on engineer to your, your log is measured down to the millimeter and secured in place and then everything's designed for the 200 year flood event or there's other guys who just literally throw trees in the creek and see where they end up and mm. um, and arguing that that's more natural and, and where they go is where the habitat should be. And we sort of go somewhere in between. Um, certain jobs, you need a certain level of confidence that your, your structure is not going to fail. If you have a bridge or a town downstream, you can't really put a log jam in that's going to move. But on these remote coastal streams, we have a bit more freedom to be a little, little bit more flexible with structures and where they go and, and how they move um yeah as far as fun stories and blanking though 
<laughs> so I have one question that's kind of come up for me is um, yeah, yeah. you mentioned you mentioned kind of acting like a beaver and um, like I've been hearing about uh, in the UK there's actual beaver reintroduction programs happening to restore habitat so I mean I wouldn't have expected that west coast tributaries would be the most appropriate place maybe to reintroduce beavers but is that something that your organization considers or has any experience with? Yeah, the beaver thing is a good question. I don't, like, we, we have been asking that up here. It, it's very much an issue in the States. Um, I was just down at a conference or like workshop in October in the Columbia River Basin, and beavers there are huge, or the lack of beavers there is a big part of their habitat problems, especially in their, like, um, kind of meadow systems, like um, headwater meadows, where the farmers got rid of all the beavers, um, I don't know if, like, I don't know how beaver controlled the West Coast was. You see them every once in a while, but I don't think we had the same level of extermination. A lot of other places, certainly, and beavers were a huge part about of introducing wood into systems and, and managing floodplains and stuff. And very much they are either reintroducing beavers or they, there's a technique called a BDA, which is a beaver dam analog, which is a... <laughs> Uh, really the kind of like rudimentary version of some of these log jam structures I'm talking about where they are just more weaved together by hand in smaller mm -hmm. systems um, just to very just to simulate that but yeah no beavers beavers are great for, for I guess rivers. I have a question that maybe like even kind of pulls us back to the to when we were talking about your your background but like so much of this is like it's so like well thought out and scientific and like even when you say like oh just throwing logs in like how did you, like, is it mostly applied learning that you found yourself, like, ga gaining all this knowledge? Because you are so knowledgeable about this. Yeah, and I think the field of restoration itself is one big experiment in applied learning. Because it is sort of new, you know, like, at, at this, this scale that it's going on now. And in the States, it's much bigger. Like, in, in Oregon, Washington... Fisheries habitat restoration is a billion-dollar industry. It's not done by charities. It's done by big consulting and engineering firms, and there's yeah. tons of money. Um, whereas I, I think it's coming here. Recent changes in Fisheries Act and stuff have really prioritized habitat and habitat restoration. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's very much applied learning and very much trial and error. Um, seeing what works and what doesn't and what works on other projects and what doesn't it, it is you know there's it's science founded but it is a bit of an experiment as to what's going to work you know we know the value of wood to fish like that's been identified but what you know these simulated log jams and yeah uh yeah and, and, and restoration gets um a hard time for some of that sometimes because it's very difficult to prove its effectiveness um it's very expensive um, and it is an experiment, but it's also like, like, do you have a better idea? You know, like, hat <laughs> yeah, hatcheries yeah. was the solution for a long time, and they're really realizing that that is not going to fix it. What a, what's drawn me to this whole thing is like, it's something we can do tangibly now. You know, I'm not, not going to fix the salmon problem, but we can maybe make a few more fish in the local river, and that's sort of a, a win for me. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which is sort of important. Trying to work in fish conservation can be a depressing endeavor. So, like a, a little win here and there is pretty sweet. Yeah, are you are you kind of hoping to maybe pave a way to add more of a monitoring method to your 
work through your masters? Like, it sounds like your masters, sort of, it's you're doing this salmon monitoring program, and you've identified that there's uh, kind of a lack of monitoring and restoration projects, pro just due to funding um, constraints. Um, but do you think that there's a way to kind of figure out like a budget-friendly form of restoration monitoring that you can maybe craft out of your research project? Is that something on your mind? Yeah, and I, I think that is sort of the hope and sort of the gap that I kind of saw, you know, I think as the field does develop and, and gets more funding and more recognition, and I think that stuff is coming. And it does occur, like there are big restoration projects happening that have, you know, multi-year very high level uh, monitoring project like that does exist it's just not on the same scale and yeah very much so it's sort of where I kind of came down to seeing how I could fit into this stuff and you know I think a lot of the design work is sort of going more towards geomorphologists and engineers and that sort of isn't my strong point but being able to bring a higher level of fish science mm -hmm. to the field is, is is hopeful, you know, and then I think with advancements in modeling and a bit more effort put into the monitoring side of things, I think there's lots to be that can be done, for sure. Yeah. Um, then the, the the next question I just thought of too is, um, given that your organization, it seems like there's a ton of community collaboration in your work, um, and presumably, like it sounds like you 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 dunk a bunch of fish from the hatcheries in with those uh, with the the sensors embedded in them mm -hmm. and then it sounds like you just go out and have a fishing derby to see how many of those you can catch again. So, uh, are there <laughs> any like, community fishing derbies that can kind of come out of this sort of thing to facilitate oh yeah i mean <laughs> yeah yeah that's something i've been thinking about for sure i mean it, it's huge in just general salmon studies you know the fishermen give their heads back and things like that so like community engagement in salmon is big and from for my project this summer for sure we're doing this thing called micro trolling, which is essentially salmon fishing, but with tiny gear because you're just fishing the juveniles. But other than that, the principles are all the same. And so I'm hoping to hire a few local sport guides to go do that for me because um, they're better at catching fish in the ocean. But in river stuff, you have to kind of do by hand. Like you, sn you snorkel at night with a little net and go grab them. Oh, cool. Or, cool. or, or you use the same, same net. Yeah. It's, yeah, to be determined how easy. Or you shock them. It's an electro fisher. You, oh, yeah. you run through the through yeah. water and it, it stuns them. For those that haven't listened to our interview with Luke Turcotte, you can get a great <laughs> oh, yeah. explanation of electro fishing. All about fishing. Yeah, Luke would know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no community involvement is huge, right? And it's like so, you know, some of the projects sometimes we're just working just to keep people busy, keep people employed. You know, it's. It's half the battle. You gotta keep people interested. You gotta keep people employed. Um, we also gotta get good work done. Um, yeah, we didn't really talk about the money stuff, but it does come from all all sorts of places. There's a lot of making it work, right, as a charity to to last this long. It's been 25 yeah. years now, but money comes and goes, and sometimes it's lots, sometimes there's none. It's quite a scramble. But, I'm sure it's made you good at grant writing, if nothing else. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can do that for sure. <laughs> and, and recently, even well, the last couple of years, this kind of cool model. That, um, we end up doing environmental consulting and fisheries consulting um, as just like any other consultant. They pay, you know, industry standard rates, but we just put that money back towards the organization. 
which is maybe kind of a, a cool way to keep projects going that we maybe don't get the grants for this year or there's like a little to fund things like monitoring and stuff so I'm, I'm quite hopeful that that's going to be a big part of our future actually generating income that can then be used to sort of fill the gaps with the grants and and also develop a little bit of independence right so at the whim of funding right now and, yeah. But, the, yeah, but the not-for-profit environmental consulting thing, I think, is kind of cool, and I don't know if it really exists many other places. But yeah, well, right on. Well, uh, yeah, I think that brings us to the end of our interview with you today, Tom. But uh, this cool. has been hugely interesting. I yeah, this didn't is really know really a whole cool. lot about restoration, so this is great. Yeah, it's it's a weird field, but like, yeah, check out the website. And there's a cool, a couple of good like short videos on there to make you feel sappy and. Help learn. Can you shout out the website for us? Um, it's clayquat.org and it's C L A Y O Q U O T. Perfect. Yeah, nice. And nice. the in Instagram is also a big one. That's at CWFS Restoration. Okay, great. And we'll, we'll have these uh, links posted in the show notes too. So if anybody's interested in catching these, then uh, you can find them there too. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. So, Jeremy, uh, who's on the show next week? Oh, why, it's Janine Randall, who is doing her PhD researching climate and food effects on tree swallows. Birds! Woohoo! Well, and that's it for today's show. You are listening to The Abstract with Jeremy and Kristen on CFUR 88.7 FM in Prince George or online at CFUR.ca. 